You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host on America's Web Radio, sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Thanks so much again for joining us one more time. We've got more and more news uh, to talk about every day. Uh, this is kind of an odd time in sort of the healthcare uh, news cycle as, as the debate on Medicare for all kind of rattles on and takes a little bit of a pause here before the, the campaigns get uh, hot and heavy in earnest. Uh, the good news is that uh, with uh, Docs for Patient Care Foundation, we've got stuff going on or at least are connected to uh, things going on at the state level and some good things are happening. So with me is uh, it's our fearless, peerless leader, champion, and president, Dr. Lee Gross, president of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation to help uh, get us up to speed on what's been happening lately. Lee, thanks once again for joining. Hey, Mike. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Sure, of course, of course. That's uh, you know we kind of do like uh, like they do on Fox News. We have our core guests that come on on a regular basis, and <laughs> and and you're the one. So you know, anytime there's something that uh, that needs a bit of cerebral input, uh, you're the one I always turn to. So going to the Washington desk. Right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, this is like uh, you know just having having the panel uh, or or having the brain trust. So. Uh, so, Lee, there's been some stuff, of course, going on both in Georgia and Florida, and the, the Florida stuff is, is sort of built on the stuff that you worked so hard uh, and were directly involved with last year. Um, but some things have happened this year, and there are some interesting lessons to learn, especially for other states considering this. So why don't you walk us through it? Well, before I do that, I want you, you can go ahead and share your news about Georgia. I think that's a pretty exciting accomplishment there. Okay, well, sure. No, we, we can certainly do Georgia first. Yeah, uh, the, the news in Georgia is, is good, and at least in my world was a little unexpected because I thought I was connected to this and didn't learn about it until the day the governor signed it. But, yes, uh, uh, SB Senate Bill 18 um, passed, uh, 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 you know, giving direct primary care in Georgia a direct explicit green light, and it, uh, it it's the bill you always hope to get, Lee. It, it, it was pure. It's two pages. Uh, and all it says, in effect, is that direct primary care is legal. It's not insurance. It is not subject to the requirements of an insurance company uh, and lays out a very bare-bones set of requirements that uh, defines direct primary care and defines what the relationship should look like. But, uh, uh, yes, I mean, if I were inclined to torture everyone, I could read you the bill in, in, in three minutes. <laughs> please don't. <laughs> but, but please don't. <laughs> or we'll, we'll lose everybody before you get to the good stuff. Exactly. That's not the first time that bill was, was introduced. I mean, that bill had been introduced multiple times, yet something happened different this year um, that pushed that over the finish line. Do you know what... what um, I think, well, one happened? thing, it, from an ethereal level, you can talk about what's happening at the federal level and what happened in the Choice and Competition Report, which may or may not have an effect. I think the change in leadership in the House of Representatives, and I know that's going to have an effect on Certificate of Need probably next year, but there was a change in House leadership, um, and I forget the specifics off the top of my head, but we basically got... Uh, we replaced someone who was uh, very much, uh, you know, on the side of the insurance industry with somebody who wasn't, and I think that probably helped a great deal. And I think going directly to the the legislators on the the, the insurance committee and sort of getting them to understand what direct primary care was, 
uh, you know, they really did think it was insurance. They thought it was a plan until it was explained to them and somebody actually showed them what direct primary care was and how powerful it was that they that they stopped pushing back against it and, and allow it to go through. And once it did go through, it, it sailed pretty much this year, didn't it? Uh, yeah, the votes were not close. I mean, the votes were overwhelmingly positive. It was not a close, dramatic vote. I just kind of looked it all up about 20 minutes ago. And, yeah, there were yeah. it was overwhelming yes votes in, in both chambers, and the governor, of course, signed it without any difficulty, and here we are. So, um, you know, that's a bill that took me about seven years to pass here in Florida, and I just started that process with the state of Alaska. So uh, a couple weeks ago I testified via telephone with a, the uh, House of Representatives in the state of Alaska on their DPC bill. Uh, that bill happened to contain quotas in it that mandated a certain percentage of the practice uh, accept Medicare and Medicaid patients. Uh, and working with the, the, the lawmakers there, working with the bill sponsors, we were able to get that language stricken from the bill that, that requires uh, government insurance participation to be direct primary care there. But that bill's probably going to die in committee this year. Um, and then we'll just kind of keep taking another bites at the apple in Alaska. But hopefully we keep on adding more states to this. More than half the states in the country now have this protection. But yeah, it, it's an interesting – go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You know, it, it, it's an interesting process with um, legislation at the state level, and it was something I was completely unaware of until a few years ago that since the state legislatures are in such short sessions that, you know, you get a piece of it done and then the session's over and you go after it the next year, the next year, and the year after that, which is, you know, different than what happens in Washington for sure. Exactly. So we had a big, big session here in Florida for healthcare freedom. This was a this was a huge win for us. Uh, we we tackled some major major milestones here. So I'd love to share that. Yes, please do. So as you know, we passed the our direct primary care legislation last year, uh, and between last year and this year, I think the legislature really really liked what they saw happening on the direct primary care landscape. Uh, the, the, I think the care that they were seeing and the access that they were seeing through direct primary care startups I, I really impressed the legislature so much that they said, well, if this is a good model for primary care, why don't we just expand it to specialists as well and let everyone participate in this? And so this was not something that we initiated. This was something that organically developed uh, based upon the success of the model. And so a lawmaker up in Jacksonville introduced a bill that expanded direct primary care to all specialists not really important to get into the, the logistics and uh, how that bill was, was written, but it, it basically, if you are licensed to practice medicine in the state of Florida, you have the ability to enter into a fixed fee arrangement with a patient and not be considered a health insurance plan. So consider an endocrinologist or a diabetes specialist uh, entering into a fixed fee arrangement with a diabetic patient. You know, what's the importance of that is that it now frees up the doctors to innovate directly with their patients. So if you want to say as a you know as an endocrinologist, you know, you can email me in limited times, you can call me, you can text me, you can come into the office. Uh, there's no limitation on the contacts. We're just gonna make sure you're cared for properly. That is now perfectly allowable in the state of Florida. Probably allowable in most places anyway, but now it is absolutely specifically protected in Florida. And with the you know way technology is evolving and the you know, different ways you can communicate with patients it's important to be able to have these unlimited touches to, to impact patient care. And, and let's walk through exactly how that works to make sure everybody understands that. In, in a traditional you know, CPT-coded fee-for-service arrangement, uh, the physician 
is working for free unless they physically see you in the office, which means that everything has to go through a physical office visit. Uh, when you have direct primary care, and correct me if I don't have this right, I mean, you're getting the monthly fee. Everybody's incentives are aligned. You want to, the care to be the best quality, the most efficient, and, and for, for everybody involved, which opens all modalities like you were talking about. Exactly. Exactly. The, the incentives are all aligned to make sure that the patient's care, the right patient in the right setting at the right time for the right price. Um, all those things are, are done. Uh, now, the interesting thing is whenever you're opening up the, the state regulations and the state law books for editing, uh, it opens up opportunities and threats for anybody that wants to mess with that legislation. And that's precisely what happened here in Florida. So if you're thinking about doing this and, and so well, we, you know, we, we got our DPC legislation and I'll take another bite at the apple. It's a, it was a very risky proposition to do this. Um, and we fought off some very, very hostile amendments that would have been very detrimental to direct primary care in Florida had they been successful. Uh, and so one example would be specifically that they would have banned direct primary care doctors from working with small businesses. You know, that was our epiphany when we launched Epiphany Health Direct Primary Care in 2010. Well, it's the story of how it started. You were approached by a business, if memory serves. Yeah. So the business wanted to contract with us to take care of their employees. That would have been banned um, under this amendment that was filed that we had killed uh, Medicaid patients that are seeking affordable options for for care. Uh, would have been banned from seeking out care through direct primary care practices if this legislation passed. So, um, it, the amendment was, were, were very important for us to jump on these and we got them quickly and, and mobilized a force to, to, uh, knock those out pretty effectively. And, and this was, this was merely a matter of, of education, uh, as opposed to having some sort of dark force somewhere that you couldn't really see or understand sort of pushing another agenda. Yes, no, something else. Um, in terms of the motivation behind the the actual amendment itself, or how we how we were able to dismantle it? <laughs> okay, well, I, I don't know. In, in a sense, I guess it doesn't matter. I, I guess the lesson to be learned here is that uh, that any time that you know it, it's all part of this sausage making process that that is legislation um, which is that it's got to go through a lot of steps there are a lot of people that can get their eyes and their hands on this and especially like you were saying you you take a bill that's locked down or a law that's locked down and and gives you certain things and uh, you know everything's on the table you could lose ground as easily as you gain ground yep so as my first step into into law, the lawmaking process, the lobbyist told me, he said, as long as the legislature's in, in session, nobody's safe. <laughs> okay. Uh, Good way of putting it. And that is a, a lesson that I was taking with me, and this was a, a prime example. Um, so we have a, a couple minutes left, but I just wanted to also share that we did manage to repeal most of the certificate of need uh, requirements in the state of Florida so that that antiquated law from the 1970s that was a, uh, a competitor veto law, crony capitalism that uh, sets up monopolies and, and uh, restricts competition and limits choice and drives up costs. Um, every administration since the Reagan administration has, has pushed to overturn these certificate of need requirements. Um, but this was laid out in the President's Choice and Competition Report that was released last year uh, as a blueprint for free market reforms in the states. And the, Florida, the state of Florida and Governor DeSantis and the, and the Speaker of the House used this as a blueprint to guide their legislative agenda for this last session. 
and they were able to push finally since the 1980s the repeal of certificate of need requirements. You no longer have to ask your competitors for permission to compete with them. Uh, you know, as it turns out, you know, the original plan was to limit the supply of services so that they could decrease the spending on it. But it turns out when you limit the supply of services, you limit the supply of services. Um, and they got exactly what the laws were intended to do, was people were being blocked out of access and care. Uh, and and so this has a very real sort of implication in your backyard, if I understand correctly. Absolutely. I, pa- I practice medicine in the largest city in the state of Florida that has no hospital. We have 70,000 70, residents, and we do not have a hospital. We applied for it four times and were rejected by the state, um, telling us that, you know, they, for one reason or another, that we didn't meet their qualifications to have a hospital. Meanwhile, the city of Sarasota, which is, you know, 45 minutes north of us, has uh, two hospitals, and we're just approved for two more, and they have a smaller population. Well, the, the, I expect that people are already on the move to fix that. Uh, we're, uh, we're running out of time on segment one. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karu Chak, your host this week on America's Web Radio. Thank you very much for joining us once again. So hopefully uh, you enjoyed the uh, last segment where we talked to uh, our fearless, peerless leader, Dr. Lee Gross, one more time about his latest uh, accomplishments, and they are many, and they accumulate more and more by the week. You heard him talk about uh, legislative victories in Florida. Uh, he's uh, now involved in Alaska's uh, process to uh, support direct primary care. Uh, so, uh, you know, Lots and lots of neat stuff and lessons to be learned. I thought it was very interesting uh, that uh, once you uh, introduce a, a bill that uh, opens the door to changing legislative language that you can both gain ground as you intend to do, but you could lose ground as well uh, as uh, the forces of evil will take that opportunity to uh, uh, to make things worse instead of better. And it was interesting that there was almost – 
a disaster with that bill because there was language introduced that was going to uh, make it uh, illegal for direct primary care practices to contract with businesses, which basically kicks two legs out from under the three-legged stool. So very interesting uh, lessons indeed, to be sure. So for this segment, uh, I think we're going to just talk about some some stuff I've found in my travels, reading and researching and doing stuff, uh, just kind of a, a, an update for the news. And then we'll put some, a, a couple of more speakers on from uh, 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 November's uh, DPC meeting to uh, round out the hour. But first thing we'll talk about is uh, I'm going to try to start off on a positive note. I probably won't stay there for long, but I'm going to try to start off on a positive note. And, and you know that uh, I have criticized uh, heavily recently uh, this whole concept of artificial intelligence and health information technology, and I stand behind those criticisms. But I found a couple of things to talk about in the artificial intelligence uh, realm, or at least something that passes as artificial intelligence. Right? We talked about the fact that AI really has no exact definition that is universally accepted. But at least one can say that this is stuff that uh, requires heavy-duty computing power that might actually do some good in the world of medicine. The first one comes from a very unlikely source, Motor Trend Magazine, believe it or not. I do spend some time reading stuff that's not medicine or healthcare policy. Uh, I also happen to be a car guy. We've never really talked about that, which is probably just as well. Um, but from the current issue of Motor Trend Magazine, there was an article about something called Metacars. Uh, uh, what are Metacars? Well, the idea is that... Uh, they have acceleration sensors, you know, vehicle accident sensors, right? Cars already have that, right? If you have a vehicle with OnStar or something equivalent, uh, you know, the accelerometers in that vehicle can sense an accident. They can sense if the car's rolled over, if you've hit something or something like that and see if you're still awake and if you're not conscious, automatically call 911 on your behalf if you're unable to do so. That technology's already out there and you can buy it, of course. Uh, but this whole concept of a medic car takes that one step further, a big step further, which is to use a series of accelerometers in the car to really get a accurate picture of exactly how much force was involved in the accident and where those forces were applied, whether or not the airbags deployed, uh, how many passengers were in the car at the time, and you know, sort of a black box thing, right, records the, the speed and everything else and the seconds leading up to the accident. And merge that with a database that I presume is currently under development that can plot the relationship between accident types, you know, the acceleration profile of an accident, and the injuries that the occupants of the vehicle will sustain. And the idea is you build a model that allows you to predict based on exactly how the accident occurred that can then predict, uh, hopefully quite reliably, what injuries occurred, and not only call 911, but, but actually specify exactly what happened and what they need. So instead of, uh, you know, an ambulance responding in a generic fashion and discovering that the accident's severe and you need a medevac helicopter, call the helicopter first. Call them both together, uh, as opposed to that two-step process. And, and that's very important because I remember being taught in trauma, uh, something called the golden hour, which is the first hour following an accident that, you know, how and when and the timing of, of life-saving intervention can make a big difference in the outcome. So here's something, here's something where the power of, of information technology, you know, merging databases with sensors really could be put to good use to do something that we can't do by any method today. 
So I thought that was a very interesting, uh, you know, way to apply, you know, it, it far more useful than a lot of the stuff that I criticize, I think. Um, the other one actually had to do with IBM's Watson. So this is the second example now, and this was something I came across, I want to say on LinkedIn, although I, I couldn't find it again when I was looking for it to prep for the show, but I remember it pretty well. It was one of these, uh, you know, invites uh, from an IT company, happened to be IBM, and on behalf of the Watson product, of course. Uh, but the uh, the invitation was for physicians, and it was that if you are engaged in research, let Watson maintain. Watson, listen to me. <laughs> let Watson um, uh, maintain your uh, your patient database and uh, and and take care of uh, you know mining your data and 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 you know stewarding your data and uh, and let Watson have a look at it and maybe there'll be things found in your data that you didn't know. But even as just sort of a custodial function, uh, and then apply the AI to the data that it collects and, and just let it have at it as opposed to just looking at your hypothesis. Maybe you find something. And I thought that was something that was, you know, a, a, a and what I liked about it was that the scope is relatively narrow, right? This isn't curing cancer or, or you know, some sort of moonshot, you know, ridiculous sort of concept. This was, uh, you know, something that was very, can be very finite, can be very limited and defined in scope and really has a chance to be something that's, that's positive. So that's it for the, speaking of positive, that's it for the positive comments I have. The rest of this is all going to be uh, sort of things I found. You know, I, I get up in the morning and read stuff that comes across my iPad and whatnot and sort of take notes. And, and if I find something really neat, I put it in an application called Notability, which if you do any note-taking or any, uh, you know, organizing of stuff you read, I, I recommend highly. But the the common theme, and we've got, we'll see as many as the segment allows us to do. What have we got about uh, seven minutes, uh, six minutes left, or about halfway through? Um, is to uh, talk about um, th- these. There's a series of articles, and, and the the common theme among all these articles is what happens when third party payers upset the free market or upset the natural order of the universe. So uh, we're going to start with uh, sort of the resident equivalent of what we've talked about before, right? We've talked about before, and if you listen to me, you're familiar with the idea that electronic medical records, information technology wastes more time than it saves, and that for every hour we spend with patients, we have to spend two hours with the EMR. Uh, makes doctors very inefficient, and that's very true. So what happens if you look at residents? doctors in training, and uh, what is the effect um, in, on, on residency training of all of this health information technology. So this was a very interesting um, study that was... Um uh, that was uh, actually done at uh, UPenn, uh, so, you know, leading institution, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Uh, they looked at 80 interns, uh, and the, the gender breakdown and everything was all, you know, the way it should have been, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, who they recruited for the study. And they, they observed them with time, motion, observation techniques, which are, which are pretty well vetted and pretty well proven. And discovered that uh, out of a 24-hour day, and I'm trying to read this and find it, they spent a whopping three hours out of every 24-hour day face-to-face with patients. Three out of 24. So, you know, barely, what is that going to be, 15% or something, or, you know, more than 10, less than 20 uh, percent of the time is spent actually face-to-face with patients, touching them, talking to them, examining them, treating them, doing stuff, um, the, 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 the stuff that doctors do. Uh, what do you suppose they spend the rest of their time doing? 
Yeah, wait for it. Basically in front of the computer, of course. Um, not all of it. Some of it was in education, and of course that's fine. Um, but, uh, you know, what they call indirect uh, patient care, which is probably a term that is too kind, uh, was uh, almost 16 hours, 15.9 hours. So, you know, do the math. You know, that's what, two-thirds, three-quarters of their time that they're in front of a computer and 10 to 15 percent of their time uh, in front of patients. So it's just like with practicing physicians, except that it's uh, way worse. Uh, and that's you know, and, and I can I can attest to that myself. I see, uh, you know, my my hospital that I go to for most of my stuff has now been annexed into the teaching hospital network in our town of Atlanta. And uh, yeah, you can go in the, uh, the the doctor's lounge or the surgeon's lounge and and find basically a bunch of uh, young doctors at a row of computers, and that's what they're doing. They, they, you know, I, the wards are empty and the computer rooms are full, and and that's. That's kind of how how it is, and and you know it's a sad thing. Um, next, and again on the subject of hospitals and inpatient care, uh, uh, whatnot is uh, an article that I found on the subject of hospitalists, written by a hospitalist, um, one uh, David M. Mitchell, uh, Doctor Mitchell, <clears throat> and uh, and and he talks about the six uh, things that are wrong with hospital medicine, sort of the six six steps to. Um, why hospital the, the hospitalist specialty had so much promise in terms of making hospital care better, but uh, it has been reduced uh, to nothing but, uh, according to this author, uh, sort of a, a a gaming mechanism, a mechanism to survive, you know, in the third party payer system. And again, I don't I don't criticize the hospitalists for this, and I don't criticize the hospitals for what's here. Uh, but you know, it, again, it's 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 all about financial survival and. And it's sad that it's that way, but it is. So, so what are the steps? Well, the, step one, or what he calls the first pillar, is um, that you you hire a bunch of young doctors, young hospitalists that are young and hungry and have big student loans they got to pay off, and all that kind of stuff, and you put them on a fixed salary. Uh, maybe with a little productivity bonus, maybe not, but basically their expenses are fixed, and uh, and then you work them as hard as you can. And, and you can get away with that for a while. Uh, so, you know, you, you make their patient loads uh, as high as you can. That's step one. Step two uh, is what the uh, the hospitalists will now do in response to the work overload is to offload as much as they can onto specialist consults as they possibly can. Uh, and, and that's step two. And that means that, you know, their, their assessment and plan reads, you know, and I'm reading from the article, acute kidney injury per nephrology, chest pain per cardiology, cellulitis per infectious disease. So basically every line item in their assessment and plan is merely to defer to the specialist consultant uh, in terms of what's going on. So that's step two. Step one, overwork your young hire. Step two, um, you know, the young hires then respond by offloading as much of the work as possible to specialists. Step three, uh, and I'm flipping through here, is to start the, the, the process of gaming the system, which is now to manipulate your medical documentation to make your case mix index, right? That's the measure of how sick your patients are and the measure of how much you get paid. Make the case mix index as high as possible. Um, so, you know, an elevated, a slightly elevated troponin becomes an MI. You know, a cough and a temperature of 99 becomes sepsis. Um, I'm reading examples. I'm reading examples from the article. Uh, and so the idea is to make patients look 
on paper as sick as possible because that's how you get paid. And again, a third-party payer has no idea. They've never seen the patient, so they can't measure value. So you have all these weird arbitrary uh, systems in place. Um, pillar four is uh, step two of gaming the system, and uh, we'll get to this at the next segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host this week. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much for continuing to uh, to hang out with us this hour. Um, we were reading some articles. Uh, this is sort of like a journal club here, I suppose. And we were, we were reviewing this article that talked about the six things that are wrong with hospital medicine. They're really six steps that take the hospitalist specialty from potential greatness down to merely a vehicle for financial survival. And that's the opinion of the, the author of the article who is himself a hospitalist. So the six steps, we started to talk about them in the prior segment. We'll review them again briefly. Step one, um, you hire a bunch of young, hungry docs that have student loans to pay off and are ready to work really, really super hard. And then you put them on a relatively fixed salary, and then you give them as many patients to take care of as they can humanly handle. That's step one. Step two, the, the doctors themselves respond by offloading as much of the work as possible to, uh, to specialists. So, you know, if there's a pneumonia, you get a pulmonologist or an infectious disease. If there's renal failure, you get the nephrologist, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, if there's sinusitis, they call me, the ENT. Uh, so that's step two is to, is to, you know, add on to the, the, uh, specialist consultants. Step three is to start, uh, massaging your documentation to make papers, papers, patients look as uh, as sick as possible on paper, which leads to where we are now, which is step four, uh, which is the fourth pillar, which is now uh, where uh, you start gaming with things like observation status versus inpatient status, and, uh, you know, if you can use improved documentation to uh, make patients, again, look as sick as possible on paper so that you're Diagnoses change, and so your your um, your case mix index changes, and so that is step four. Step five is now where utilization review nurses enter the picture, and uh, and start looking to get fixed DRG patients out of the hospital as soon as possible. Uh, again, because you know the fixed DRG, as I understand it, and my understanding is very rudimentary, means you get a fixed payment, which means once you get the money, you want to discharge the patient as soon as possible to reduce the overhead. Uh, and then finally, the last step comes completely from without, which is the quality measures that CMS imposes on everyone. And now you've got to do everything that you can to sort of live within these quality measures, even if it, you know, creates frank distortions in the documentation in terms of how well or how sick a patient really is. So six steps. And again, why do these steps exist? They exist because hospitals live off of third-party payer payments. And, you know, and so now... You know, hospitalists above all, I mean, you know, it, this article made me feel for these folks. It's not their fault. It's not the hospital's fault. It is the system within which we all must exist. And, you know, we all have to do things similar to this in one way or another. It was just a very interesting article published in Kevin MD. Um, you know, what was this, uh, last September actually just ran across it. Um, that is, uh, that is so interesting about that. So there's Journal Club article number one. And again, the theme of all of this, these articles I found is 
how third-party payer distorts every single part of medicine. You know, we talk about, you know, certain things, you know, primary care and information technology, and, you know, we talk about all these things. Um, you know, there's a lot of other nooks and crannies in the system that, that we don't have time to give a lot of attention to, hospitalists being one of them. And so we'll talk about a few of these. So here's an article on the opioid ec- epidemic um, and what you might not know about the opi- opioid ec- epidemic is that uh, in 2016, uh, the CDC, in response to the opioid epidemic, uh, came out with some very uh, draconian guidelines, at least according to this author, about, you know, when you can prescribe opioids, how long you can prescribe opioids, who can prescribe them. I hate that word opioids. They're narcotics, for crying out loud. Uh, uh, But, uh, you know, what were the rules for for, um, prescribing narcotics? And, uh, you know, we don't, I'm not exposed to this very much. I give very, very short courses of narcotics after surgery. um, And I do give less now than I used to. I used to give 30 hydrocodone Tylenol pills. Now I give 20. And if it's a smaller surgery, even 15 or even as little as 12. Um, And I think that's worked out pretty well. I think there's probably a lot fewer of my patients with, you know, half-consumed uh, bottles of uh, you know, Tylenol and hydrocodone sitting in their cabin, which is a good thing. Uh, but I didn't do that in response to any forced guideline. I just did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. But apparently docs and other specialties who, you know, prescribe narcotics under different conditions, uh, you know, were really sort of pushed into doing that. And in, um, uh, you know, in, in, in March of... Uh, of uh, this year, the, the the CDC received a letter from 300 medical experts, uh, including former drug czars from the prior administration, saying that the 2016 guidelines had become a tool for insurers to deny opioid coverage. Right here comes the third party distortion, as if these guidelines weren't enough. Now you've got insurers denying opioid coverage, and for doctors to undertreat or even drop patients that they have on narcotics. And as a result, you know, there were a lot of patients really hurting and they were going into narcotic withdrawal. So now what happens? Well, now doctors get a warning, right? Again, it's always the doctor's fault um, that you can't taper opioids, opioids, see, look at me, narcotics too soon. And so now you got another set of guidelines that countermand the original set of guidelines. And, you know, in reading the article, you know, some people seem to like this. You know, to me, it's confusing. It's kind of like, okay, you know, what are, what are my legal responsibilities, uh, you know, as a narcotic prescriber? And, you know, once again, third party interference from government and insurers, you know, at the very least, what it does is it deprives the physician of autonomy. It deprives the physician of the ability to use clinical judgment to know when opioids, opioids, listen to me, narcotics are appropriate and when narcotics aren't appropriate, how much, how often, when, for how long, you know, all that is now, uh, you know, taken away from us and our ability to make those judgments is bad. And remember, it was regulations that started this whole thing in the first place, right? Doctors just didn't start deciding arbitrarily years ago to start over-prescribing narcotics. This all came down because of, uh, you know, JCAH that accredits hospitals, the pain scale, and, you know, the, the first lecture that we got, you know, years ago that we weren't giving enough uh, medications to patients for pain. So, you know, this is what happens with third-party interference. First, they pushed us to give too much narcotic. Then they threatened us legally 
to reduce the amount of narcotics, and now the pendulum's back again saying, oh, no, don't taper too soon or you're going to hurt somebody. This is what happens with these rapidly flipping guidelines back and forth, back and forth, uh, and, and, you know, in the end, we're, we're deprived of our ability to make judgments. If they would just have left us alone, none of this would have happened. Not that uh, narcotic addiction is not a significant problem. It is. It always has been. Uh, now the problem is far worse because of third-party interference with the practice of medicine. That's that. Now let's look at another sort of section of the healthcare system that we haven't really talked about very much at all, which has to do with medical research. Medical research that is largely carried out at our hallowed, revered academic institutions. And this article actually starts off picking on my medical school, Alma, Alma Mater Duke University. So it's, you know, with some sadness that I report this, except to say that it's happening in other places besides Duke, and the, and the article just appropriately says that, you know, Duke is just the latest uh, in, a, in a long string of this, but this is the Duke settling a, a doctor data lawsuit for $112.5 million, so a really, really high price tag. Um, but that there was, uh, you know, a, a one particular physician researcher that was fudging data, and, uh, you know, fudging data a lot. Uh, it, it seems they had a whistleblower, um, and, uh, and they're going to receive a significant amount of the $112 uh, million. Um, but, you know, the, the data here are a little scary. Uh, that, uh, you know, the study was on the effects um, of pollutants, air pollution on the lungs in a, in a mouse model, and that, um, you know, Duke had won some 50 NIH grants from, well, not just the NIH, Environmental Protection Agency, other government agencies, and apparently the data that were in these things were um, uh, fraudulent data. And, you know, it, and Duke's not the only one that's got this, uh, you know, Fraudulent data problem. The uh, the the article you know has, says there's other ones. In 2017, Brigham and Women's had to pay the government 10 million dollars um, because three stem cell scientists um, manipulated and falsified information. Columbia University in New York City had one for 9.5 million. So uh, you know it's not just one institution; it's several institutions. And you know this article mentions three, counting Duke. Um, but again, it's a third-party payer problem. It's not exactly the same because it's not insurance, but you have a situation where researchers are are dependent on a, a benefactor for the money, and they end up sort of working in one project and one project only. <clears throat> and if the well runs dry on the validity of that project, then they're in a terrible ethical bind. Because if they just come out and say, you know what, I've been working on this project five years, ten years, and you know what, it's just not panning out. You know, there's there's nothing here to find. It's a dead end. Uh, you know, their career's over. Because if they lose their NIH grant, they lose their job, as I understand it. And so, you know, what's a what's a PhD researcher to do? You know, you have to start over again in somebody else's lab with no grant and you know minimal salary. I mean, it's you know we've set up a system here, you know, where you know I'm not saying the players aren't at fault, but I'm I, I'm saying I, I recognize their ethical dilemma of that you know you do one project, you rely on grants, you have no other income stream, and <clears throat> if that runs dry, <clears throat> excuse me. 
then you know you're you're in a it's it's a terrible a terrible ethical dilemma. These folks are are their entire careers based on one scientific hypothesis, one project, and uh, you know again you know we've got a problem where government involvement has distorted things so badly that there's a problem. Okay, so we've got uh, a couple of minutes left. Let's talk about uh, wellness programs. All right, here's another sort of nook and cranny that we've never really gone into, but uh, wellness programs. We're talking about workplace wellness programs, right, where your employer offers you financial incentives to exercise more, to eat better, to do all these things. And on the surface, it sounds like a good idea. And In fact, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, had very, very generous incentives. You could apparently put uh, you know, incentives in place worth up to 30% of the cost of your health insurance, uh, you know, which ended up being, you know, hundreds or even thousands of dollars of, of benefits um, from, uh, you know, doing, you know, participating in one of these wellness programs. So um, this is published in Kaiser Health News, uh, April 16th of last month, and they finally looked at, uh, they, they had a large study cohort. They used BJ's Wholesale Club. And they, I guess they've got 160 stores. So they put 20 store outlets on a wellness program and 140 stores they left as they were without a wellness program. And after 18 months, it turned out, yeah, the, the workers participating in the wellness programs did self-report healthier behavior, but those efforts did not result in any difference in health measures. You know, blood sugar was no better. Um, you know, uh, the money spent on health care didn't change. Job performance didn't change. Longevity in the position didn't change. And so, you know, we've got another situation where the data show that something that seems like a good idea does not appear to be based on this. Now, there's some shortcomings in the study, and we're running out of time. So uh, we're done. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on our road trip from Atlanta to Orlando to DPC 3.0. With me in the mobile studio is Grace Marie Turner, who needs no introduction. Uh, We're going to spend all the time letting her give us her wisdom uh, about what's going on in Washington. And I'm not even going to ask pointed questions, Grace Ring. I'm just going to let you go, and I'm going to be quiet. Oh, you're so good. You guys know so much more about what's going on in the health care system than those of us in Washington do. But unfortunately, so many decisions made in Washington affect your practices. So I follow those closely with the with our, in our work with the Galen Institute, which is a nonprofit think tank founded on the idea of protecting the doctor-patient relationship and putting that back at the center of our health sector. And it's never an easy job, of course. And this, of course, been the last, it's now eight years dealing with Obamacare and the assault on our on our small group and individual health insurance markets. But we're beginning to see some some cracks and some opportunities for individuals to be able to get the health insurance of their choice, to begin to have more options and opportunities for affordable coverage. Of course, one of the main things that Congress did earlier this year was get rid of the penalty for not having government approved health insurance. The individual mandate was gone as part of the tax bill, and that really has given a lot of energy to companies in the health sector to think about ways that they can provide more options and more opportunities for people to have different kinds of of health insurance coverage. At the same time, the Trump administration is using its administrative and regulatory authority to try to, again, open up more options. And I'll be talking about, about those a, a little bit this evening as we have a conversation over the impact of Washington on health reform. Three things that the administration has done just in the last year I think really are important. First, it has allowed people to have something called short-term limited-duration plans. These are things we refer to as bridge coverage, people who've lost a job, they're starting a company, they retire early, they're not yet eligible for Medicare, who need health insurance, and they need a a short-term plan. The administration has allowed those to last for a year. The Obama administration cut them back to only three months. And the Trump administration also is allowing them to be renewed for three years, which really means that you can have um, an individual policy of your choice that does not have to comply with all of the expensive Obamacare rules and regulations. Most of the policies are half, even 70% lower than the previous policies in the individual market. They also are letting 10 million businesses have opportunities to use health reimbursement arrangements as a way of compensating their employees for health insurance. Basically, it's a defined contribution that allows people the option 
of getting the money that their employer would have put on the table for their health insurance coverage and using that to buy the private plan of their choice. Maybe they would like to be able to combine their funds with their spouse's funds in order to be able to buy an individual policy. Maybe by having the, the defined contribution from one employer, they can use that money to buy a family policy with the other employer because usually the premiums are higher for that. And then finally, they're allowing association health plans to be revived. These are plans that allow people to aggregate in different ways than under employers through professional associations, trade associations, um, community groups that allow them to to basically get the economies of scale that large employers get, but to do it and purchase those as individuals. People are having a good time with this part. <laughs> they are. They are. Even behind the plexiglass of the uh, acoustic tiles, we're still getting it. <laughs> But just to finish with the Association Health Plans, I just yes. saw today that Land Lakes, the, the creamery, is starting an Association Health Plan so that dairy farmers can, can combine to uh, purchase health insurance that, um, that works for them that does not have to be Obamacare compliant. So I think those are all important important options and important options for DPC practice because people are going to demand the kind of coverage that works for them rather than the kind of coverage that Washington has been telling them for the last eight years they have to have. So, dare I ask, do you want to try reading the tea leaves or at least looking at the different potential forks in the road after uh, the November midterms? Well, it really depends upon what happens in the elections. When are we going to be airing here? This show? Oh, I, I don't know. This okay. may be after, after probably okay. after, yes. So we're going to have to go one way or the other. So right. if, if Republicans control, the, don't lose control of the House. So if you still have Republicans in control of both, both houses of Congress, I, I really believe they're going to come back to health reform because they do not want to be pummeled the way they have during the general during this general election over pre-existing conditions. So they know they've got to go back to the drawing board and try again, hopefully with stronger numbers, to be able to pass the thing. If Republicans don't hold the House, it pretty looks it looks pretty pretty certain they'll hold the Senate. If they don't hold the House, I think we actually may see some legislation during the lame duck, which is only a few weeks in late November and early December, and then. If they, if they don't do that, I think we're really teed up for the big debate in the next presidential campaign over whether we have Medicare for all or whether or not we have a system that does, in fact, restore power and control to individuals through free market options and giving them really devolving power through the states. <laughs> they're having a, doesn't everybody wish they were here? I know. I'm telling <laughs> so you what. Funny. I'm wondering what they're doing. What are they doing? There's a There's huge some, crowd over there. Some kind of a game going on. I don't know. Yeah, I see it. We're yeah. I don't know what that is. Are there some for some sort of a photo? So photo something over going. there. Yeah, Who's exactly. Who's your celebrity here? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so they think they found a celebrity. It's Apparently. Fun. But this is this shows you. I mean, this is, we should use this because this is the spirit here at this conference. Of That's people what excited says. and enthusiastic and feeling that there's 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 hope ahead because there's a new path for doctors to actually practice medicine. And the spirit here shows that. It's really extraordinary. And and, and Lee Gross earlier this evening behind that microphone said 
something very cogent, which is that, you know, when you go to most doctor meetings, especially if they include some sort of legislative talk, it sounds like a funeral yeah. because everybody is depressed over the deteriorating conditions in medicine, but not here. Not here. And, sure. and, and Dr. Gross just actually is walking by us right yes. now with a big smile on his face. Indeed. He's happy to see the con- the turnout here, the participation, and the enthusiasm. And the, He just waved at us. The yes, enthusiasm indeed. here. I know. No question about it. So so one last question for you, and, and this is this is an unrehearsed question just, just to be fair, is if if the Republicans get a chance, right, with both houses in control, if that happens, and they take another stab at Obamacare, um, do you think they can do a good job? They can. In fact, our policy community has worked tirelessly for the last year to come up with really the next generation of free market health reform. It's called the Health Care Choices Plan. And you can read all about it at our dedicated website that's called healthcarereform2018.org. Two, three words, healthcarereform2018, all together, .org. And people can, can read about the health care choices plan. It's going to devolve power through the states, ultimately to individuals, using the Obamacare money as a platform to really create a, a much more vibrant, affordable health sector in um, in this, particularly the individual and small group markets. We've had some modeling done on the plan. It reduced, reduces, reduces premiums by a third. It doesn't have the decimation that we saw with the other Republican plans and 22 million people losing coverage. Coverage stays level, really goes up. Reduces the deficit. We think that this is the plan that Congress will come back to, and I'm going to be talking about that tonight, too. Outstanding. Well, Grace Marie Turner, thank you for visiting the Doctor's Lounge. It is such a pleasure. Thank you so All much, right. Buck. All right, so we got you, Grace Marie, there, uh, the interview from last November. So uh, uh, I know that, uh, you know, with the November election, the Democrats have the House, so some of that conversation is, at least for the moment, not directly applicable. However, um, you did hear uh, a few weeks ago that, that uh, President Trump had uh, re-declared uh, his intentions, um, reaffirmed his intentions, uh, to repeal and replace uh, Obamacare, hard to tell where that's going to go. Uh, you know, certainly in uh, in a Democrat-controlled House, not much. But we're close enough to 2020 that if you dare to dream big, uh, that that maybe uh, after the 2020 elections, uh, you know, we get another shot at uh, you know having both houses and maybe something good happens. Who knows? Obviously, that's a long way off and, and a huge amount of speculation. So. To fill up, we have, what, two minutes and 40 seconds left. We've got, I got a couple of more articles to fill the space and do our, our 13 minute segment. One of which, um, is an interesting, uh, sort of thing, which I think is from Medscape, I wanna say. No, no, Becker's ASC review. Okay. So this is, uh, actually a report of, oh, Medscape's, um, physician compensation report for 2019. Uh, and sort of a, a summary of, of some of the statistics, um, from that, uh, report. So I thought this was very interesting that physicians were asked, which um, which reimbursement model do you participate in? And you could pick more than one because obviously, uh, you know, some folks do more than one. And so the options were insurance, fee-for-service, ACO, direct primary care, cash-only, and concierge. 
and so the, the first number was insurance. So how many physicians and what percent of physicians you think are still under insurance? Well, the number is 81%. And you say, well, that sounds about right. You know, most physicians are still in, a, in an insurance model getting paid by third parties. The interesting thing I thought about that was to do the math and realize 19% didn't check that box. So that means there are 19% of docs surveyed for this. And this was some, you know, almost 20,000 physicians interviewed for this or questionnaires surveyed for this, uh, it said that, uh, that they didn't, uh, you know, 19% of, uh, of, of uh, that number uh, are, are not uh, taking uh, payments from insurance. So where are those folks? Well, uh, 11 out of that 19% is in direct primary care. And so that's a great number because the last time I saw a statistic, that number was 5%. Now it's over double that. Uh, and I wonder if some of the folks, you know, that th- th- maybe that number is even higher than 11 because the 19% that don't take insurance have to come from somewhere. Uh, there is cash-only practice, which is 6%. Um, you know, that brings the number up to 17 um, and uh, and then you know the concierge practice is two percent, but that the concierge by definition takes insurance, so they're a part of the eighty one percent. But I thought it was very interesting that uh, direct primary care line item is eleven percent, which is more than double the last number I saw. But if you look at insurance at eighty one percent, that leaves nineteen percent that aren't taking insurance anymore. So that's a big number. Uh, you know, maybe I'm misinterpreting that somehow, but I found that to be a a very very interesting. Um, statistic. Uh, so uh, that pretty much wraps up the hour. So we had a little of everything here. Uh, hopefully you, you enjoyed what you heard. We heard from uh, Dr. Lee Gross in the beginning telling us about Florida legislation. I talked a little bit about the Georgia legislation and we went on from there. Um, that's it for the hour. Thanks for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.